Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and Mazel Tov. The uh, travel writer and, um, and journalist, Jan Morris, who has, if you Google her after Shabbat, she has a fascinating history, Jan Morris. She wrote her about her trips to uh, Trieste, and she said, no matter how many times I visit the place in the end, I'm visiting myself which is an insight that says no matter where we go, we actually end up traveling inside of ourselves. Because travel, when you travel, it doesn't so much tell you about Paris or London or Amsterdam as it does tell you about yourself in Paris and London and Amsterdam. So I want to tell you what I discovered about myself in Italy. My first disclaimer to this little story is that I had some people helping me. And the second disclaimer to the story is, I don't have complete permission to retell it in its entirety. So I hope they forgive me. Three years ago, my wife and I met Cantor Moses and his wife, Melissa, in Rome. It wasn't an accident. We planned on it. Before we left Toronto, Melissa had made a point to tell us that when we get to the central train station in Rome, do not let the gypsies carry your luggage to the train. Reports are, she said, that lots of theft occur when they take the luggage. Now, the gypsies are actually the Roma, a tribe that traces its roots back to northern India. They're actually called gypsies because when they came to Europe, people thought that they were from Egypt. In any event, the Roma, the gypsies, have been living in Europe since the 10th century, but have rarely assimilated into mainstream European society, and to this day, most of, them, most of them live itinerant migrant lives living outside the cities or by train stations and bus stations. So Lisa and I get to the train station and we spot and meet our good cantor and his lovely wife, Melissa, who happens to warn us again. She says, don't let the gypsies take your bags. And not a second later do I see hordes of gypsies coming to us with arms out and hands open to offer to carry our luggage to the train for a tip. Now, with her warning in my ears, I grab the bags and waddle like a duck my way to the train, sweating and straining through the crowds to get to our car, wondering why I bother working out if I get that sweaty carrying luggage. And as I get to the train, even more gypsies are there offering to lift the heavy bags up for a tip, but I turn my back and I slingshot the bags on board. We get to our seats, secure the luggage, and I look through the window of the train and I see Melissa coming to it with two gypsy men carrying her bags. <laughs> and they even bring her bags on board, and she thanks and tips them, and she sits next to us. And what's the first thing you think I say to her? Mel, what in God's name were you thinking? And she looks at me and says, but they looked like they needed the money and were nice. And in Rome I discovered that there are names and there are people. Most of us, most of the time, confuse the two. But in the end, these weren't two shyster gypsies looking to steal luggage. They were two men looking to feed their families. 
Every time we leave home, you check for your passports. In fact, probably the last thing you do before you go out the door is you say, above all else, passport and credit card. Everything else you can replace. But I want you to know that passports only came into existence after the First World War. Before then, passports, they had something called identity papers. And before that, not much of anything, actually. For most of human history, there was no such thing as borders. And there was no such thing as citizenship. People had rights to a certain area of the world, not because they filled that paper and were citizens. People belonged to a certain area because that is where their tribe was from. So the Franks settled in France. The Sverds developed Sweden. The early Gauls settled Germany. And if you weren't from that tribe, you didn't have rights. And if you did, you did. It was the modern political world that created borders, and those borders created what we call today citizenship. The other week, last week, I read that over 32,000 refugees have made illegal crossings into Canada this year. A day later, an illegal Somali migrant stabbed a police officer and then tried to run over four people in Edmonton, and I said to myself, oh boy, just wait and watch. Two days later, groups with names like Storm Alliance and Wolfpack appeared 500 strong at the border crossing in Quebec used by the migrants to stage a demonstration. They called themselves ultra-nationalists, whatever that means, and they shut down the crossing for the day. But even those of us who wouldn't gather to protest by an illegal border crossing are inclined to divide immigrants into good ones and bad ones. The good ones are the ones who we think belong here. They who look and talk and think like us. The bad ones, they don't. And Jews know this very well. Before the outbreak of the Second World War, select Jews were given visas to England and the United States and Canada. These were Jews with names like Sigmund Freud, Albert Einstein, the theologian Abraham Heschel, Ernest Chain, who developed penicillin, Paul Ehrlich, who developed the magic bullet concept, Arthur Eingruen, the inventor of aspirin, Eric Fromm, Max Wertheimer, to name literally just a few. In the fields populated by these extraordinary people, literature, physics, chemistry, biology, medicine, and psychology, the U.S. Path patents increased 300-fold in the coming decade. By 1944, more than 133,000 Jewish emigres had moved to North America, many of them highly skilled and educated, among them future Nobel Prize laureates. But consider that this was a drop in the ocean compared to the over 9 million European Jews who were alive before the war and the 6 million who would eventually be murdered. The U.S. government, the Canadian government, and the British government carefully selected the good Jews from the bad Jews. The good Jews were those who could benefit their country at ignoring the benefit they could give to the people on the brink of disaster. Those were the bad ones. But not all who were chosen left. 
Viktor Frankl, psychiatrist and neurosurgeon, wrote in his memoirs of hearing the news of his visa approval, but hours before the outbreak of the war. He went to the American consulate in Vienna to pick up his visa, but his excitement was short-lived when he realized that his visa was valid for only one person. At that moment, he was confronted by the fact that if he escaped to America, he would have to leave his parents and his fiancée behind. In despair, he writes of leaving the embassy, and on the way back, he came upon the ruins of the destroyed central synagogue of Vienna. Covering the yellow star of David on his jacket, he sat on a nearby bench, and in the end decided there was no way he could leave those he loves behind. After the war's last bullet had rang, Frankel would live to see the deaths of his mother, his father, his sister, and his pregnant wife. For me, I always wondered why there was no Jewish holiday for when the Israelites entered into the land of Israel, the Promised Land. I mean, after all, there's a holiday to celebrate their leaving of Egypt, a holiday for receiving the Torah, holidays that celebrate victories and salvations of all kinds, and yet there is none none that marks the day of our greatest joy, the day when the children of those slaves of Egypt stepped over the river into the land. The last holiday mentioned in the Torah is this one of Sukkot that we celebrate today. Sukkot with his huts and stories of our wandering through a desert for 40 years. The Torah leaves us with the people on the precipice of arriving home, but never tells us the story of them actually entering into it which from a commercial Hollywood perspective makes no sense at all. But from a moral one, it makes all the sense in the world. Because what we call home is always something temporary. And the map of all of our lives are filled with transient waypoints of all shapes and sizes. The poet Neruda wrote of the land that I had lost in my childhood, because in some way each of us knows that there is something lost in all of us. If we are aware and sensitive and wise, every trip is a trip to find something inside of ourselves. It only looks like we're going somewhere. But the Torah commands that migrants be cared for with love, to be sensitive to their plight, because how much actually separates me and you from those in search of a home? A stroke of chance of being born here as opposed to there. But the real indictment of the discussion in Canada and the Western world surrounding both legal and illegal immigration seldom has anything to do with demographics, education, social policy, or urban development. In the end, immigration comes down to fear. If one week ago I held up a picture of a Syrian immigrant in one hand, and a 64-year-old white accountant from the Midwest United States and another, and asked you, who was more apt to create harm and death? Who would you have chosen? I know who I would have chosen. It would have been the Syrian. And yet the events in Las Vegas, and time and time again, we are shown that the most dangerous crimes, both here and in the States, are carried out by native citizens. My personal experience has shown me time and time again 
touching base with many immigrant populations in this country, that the people who managed to arrive to these safe shores simply want the quiet to raise their families and build their lives. In other words, they want to be just like you and me. In the end, it seems to me that there are no good and bad immigrants, but there are good and bad people. And as a society, that is precisely what we need to be vigilant, no matter if they are from Hamilton or Tashkent. With that in mind, Jewish tradition tells the story of a wealthy American Jewish philanthropist who came to visit the world-famous scholar, Rabbi Meir Israel Kagan, also known as the Chavetz Chaim, for the name of the book that he wrote. She called ahead to arrange for an appointment with the great rabbi. It took some time for her to get to Radim, Poland, where he lived. No cars or trains were available, only a horse-drawn buggy. When she finally arrived to the small town and quietly entered into a small house, the woman noticed that there was very little furniture, and even the kitchen table was falling apart and had only a few chairs left to sit on. And she thought to herself, how could it be that this great man would live like this. So Rabbi, she says to him, I want to help you out. I'm going to arrange to have a household full of furniture sent to you immediately from New York by way of the fastest boat. A person of your stature and standing in this community cannot be allowed to live such a way. And the rabbi smiled at her offer and he asked her, tell me, where is your furniture? Well, she says, it's all back in New York. And he says, why didn't you bring it with you? Because, Rabbi, I'm only here for a short time. Well, well, the great rabbi said, I feel exactly the same way. I'm here only for a short visit. This morning, we remember the words of the writer Tolkien, who once wrote that not all those who wander are lost. Shabbat Shalom.